I'm not one who remembers dreams very well. When I did remember my dreams, it was funny because often I would be floating. It's as if your brain is unpacking the day's events and your brain remembers, of course, that you've spent the day in weightlessness, so your dreams are going to be in weightlessness. When I would wake up, occasionally I would wonder where I was. It'd be completely pitch black in your crew quarter and you'd have earplugs in to help you sleep so there's no sound, there's no light, and the realisation comes across you that, oh, that's right, I'm on a space station. <laughs> Welcome to the Future Lab podcast. This is Tim Peake. I'm a British astronaut who works with the European Space Agency. In all of your training, it's the one thing that the instructors can't give you. They can't give you that appreciation of, of looking out of the hatch and seeing Earth from space. It's this whole body experience of floating being in freefall around the planet and the silence as well. You're aware you're on a space station and there's gentle hum of the airflow being circulated, but it's not like on an aircraft where there's the noise of an engine and there's the vibration. On a space station, it's very graceful, it's very serene, it's very peaceful and calm. You've got this incredible view of Earth against the blackness of space and you, your brain is trying to comprehend that and take it all in. But in your subconscious, you're kind of thinking, I'm off the planet. I've really escaped planet Earth. I'm Lucy Johnston. In the Future Lab podcast, I'll be seeking out and bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations that are taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present-day reality. Over the coming episodes, I'll be talking to the people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth, like sustainability and climate change, pushing humanity to achieve things we've never seen before. My job is to research the worlds of technology and science, to find out what's coming next, and to study the impact that's going to have on industry, society, and the world around us. I also curate the annual FutureLab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. In this episode, the people turning dreams of human flight into reality. A real-life Iron Man. You're hammering along, skimming over the water, kicking up a plume behind you. You're just cartwheeling, going wherever you like. And a motor racing circuit in the sky. It's the one we've all been waiting for. Even Henry Ford was waiting for. He said, you know, mark my words, the car and the plane will eventually merge. This podcast is brought to you by a medical diagnostic company called Randox. And over the series, we're going to be hearing short stories about the work they do and the people who work there. People like David. My name is David Martin, and I'm one of the senior management team. David's something of a legend around Randox, because he's been there pretty much from the start. Almost from the very beginning, so... Oof. Nearly 40 years ago. 
Whenever the Fitzgeralds set up the business, it was literally a converted stable in a chicken house at the back of their family homes. Today, Randox is no longer a chicken house. It has a huge compound based just outside of Belfast. And what does Randox do? Well, the company is a manufacturer of diagnostics. These are the instruments that would be used in a hospital laboratory or a research environment to test blood, you know, to help clinicians understand the diseases and help researchers try and develop new ways of treating and diagnosing conditions. But in 2020, the global pandemic transformed the nature of Randox's business. At the end of the day, we are the biggest testing facility in the UK and perhaps Europe. Later in the show, we'll return to Randox and hear all about how that came to be. And now, back to the Future Lab podcast. Why are humans so obsessed with the idea of flight? And why do so many of us experience flying dreams? Since our earliest days, we've been captivated by and envious of the freedom of birds who travel the earth in a way that's so carefree and removed from our gravity-bound existence. This inspiration and desire for freedom has sparked experimentation and innovation over centuries, from the Romans to Leonardo da Vinci, early hot air balloons and airships, the momentous period of the first flights of early aircraft, and into the huge industry that's followed. From the ancient Greeks gluing feathers to their arms, to modern-day base jumpers throwing themselves off cliff edges, Nothing seems to compel us quite like the promise of independent flight. One human, alone in the air, feeling as close to a bird as possible. Before we get into this episode's stories of jet suits and flying cars, I thought if anyone could help me understand the feeling of freedom through flight, it would be someone who's lived the ultimate flying dream. No one else flies as high or as far as an astronaut. I do remember as a child just being mesmerised by flight. Looking up in the sky, looking at aircraft, and in particular fascinated about helicopters. Tim Peake was the first British astronaut to visit the International Space Station. The mission was the culmination of an entire life dedicated to the dream of flight. The very first time I actually flew was as a cadet at 13 years old, and I remember going up in a glider. I would go flying with the Air Force section at the weekends. It's just one of the purest forms of flight. It's just so silent and mesmerising, and, and you can just feel the aircraft responding to your touch and responding to the elements around it. And I came back from that flight, and that really kind of sealed my fate. When I first joined the army, I wasn't sure I wanted to commit to a full career. And I thought, well, six years in the army, that's great, you know, have a great time, see the world, do lots of flying, and then maybe go on and, you know, grow up and do something else. And of course, I never really grew up. I just enjoyed flying so much that um, it took over my life. And so I decided the only way to carry on flying was to become more professional, more specialised. 
as a helicopter instructor, that let me stay in the cockpit. And then the next logical step on from that was to become a test pilot. In his quest to keep flying and to never grow up, Tim began to nurture a new dream. I was coming to the end of my time as a military test pilot and I was thinking about leaving the army and wanting to carry on as a test pilot in civilian life. And at the same time, the European Space Agency had their selection process. I can't remember the actual strap line. It was about something like, you know, a new generation of space explorers wanted by the European Space Agency. And I kind of thought, well, hang on a second, you know, looked at the application form. If they were looking for people who had a degree in a kind of a science or engineering, or you could be a pilot with more than a thousand hours. So I had both of those. There are some people applied to be astronauts who are quite soon after their academic studies, whereas I had, by that point, had over 15 years of operational experience. So I thought, well, you know, I've got to give it a go. Tim was selected from over 8,000 hopefuls to train up as an astronaut. Next came six years of preparation, learning about space technology and science, learning new medical skills, understanding how the space station operates, and eventually homing in on the specific tasks he'd be undertaking during his mission. In 2015, with all that preparation behind him, the day of liftoff finally arrived. It's all geared around your launch time. And we were quite fortunate. Our launch time was three minutes past five local time in the afternoon in Kazakhstan by Kanur. It actually made for a normal working day. We were kind of up at seven o'clock. You go straight into a shower. That's the very first thing you do. And you have to wash yourself down with this antibacterial microbial soap so that you're as sterile as you can be. And then the flight surgeon literally comes and towels you down with sterilized towels and you get into sterilized long johns and kind of top that go underneath your spacesuit. So it's all these medical procedures that are going on. And then you go and have your kind of crew breakfast before you go. So you're kind of all in quarantine together. And then you go through the ceremonies, the Russian Orthodox blessing, saying goodbye to friends and family. After all of that sort of public work is done, you get down to the more professional elements. You start checking your suit, pressurization checks, and making sure everything's all good to go. One final farewell, and then off on the bus to the launch pad. The adrenaline slowly builds throughout the day. But what's really nice, actually, is you get on the bus and it's almost like a switch being flicked. That's the point where you can just think, OK, you know, all of that's done with now. Let's just focus on the mission. I really can't begin to imagine how it must feel sitting in that tiny capsule in those final minutes before launch. The countdown clock ticking and in your mind, just the idea that you're about to leave Earth behind. There's some music being played into the capsule just to help you kind of try and relax. And then when the music stopped, I remember, you know, thinking, wow, you know, we've got less than five minutes to launch. Uh, we better start, you know, switching on and doing these final checks and things. The launch is just a moment of pure adrenaline. I mean, the power, the noise, the vibration, you've got nine million horsepower. 
and this rocket beneath you is just unbelievable. It's just pushing you skywards at four Gs of acceleration. And it's an enormous amount of fun. I mean, you can't help yourself but grin as the rocket launches off. And this thing lasts for eight minutes, 48 seconds. So it's not a short thing either. It just keeps going and going. And you go through the staging process, first stage boosters separate. And there's a big jolt as that happens and you kind of feel like you're falling. And then the G-forces build back up again, second stage jettisons. And by that point, you're into space. The third stage, all about you know, getting up to 25 times the speed of sound. It's a crazy, crazy acceleration. My overwhelming feeling there was just how mind-bogglingly out of control it felt in terms of speed. I mean, when you're on a rocket going up to 25 times the speed of sound, you, your comfort level was left way behind. I mean, in terms of what you can comprehend, it's so fast, it's just unbelievable. Tim and the crew were launched into the nighttime part of the orbit over the sea of Japan. And when the noise of the engines finally cut out. I unstrapped from my seat and just floated up to have a look outside the window. And at that moment, the moon started rising over the Pacific and I just saw this, you know, moon glinting in the ocean. And it was completely dark except for the moonlight and just seeing the stars in the Milky Way. It was a very, very beautiful, serene view to look down on. Every 45 minutes, you've got a sunrise or sunset. 40 minutes later, the sun is coming up and, and you suddenly see Earth in all of its glory. All of the colours come shining out. It's difficult to describe just how beautiful the planet looks from space, how colourful it is. That's what makes Earth stand out. Jupiter can look beautiful with its uh, swirling storms and Saturn with its rings. But Earth is very different. You get to Earth and you think, hang on, something is happening down there. The blue, the white of the clouds, the atmosphere, the greens of the forests, the oranges of the deserts. It is a stunning, stunning planet and it's very obvious that it's one that harbours life. That is surely the most incredible floating, flying freedom that humans can ever experience. Technology and industry are constantly challenging what's possible and creating new opportunities. So a new era of space tourism is now not too far away. Something to explore in a future episode. But for now, there's another road towards human flight that seems a little more within reach. And that's courtesy of this guy, Richard Browning. You'll latch the kill switch, you squeeze the trigger in, you feel a click, all five engines start spooling up. So now you can squeeze that throttle trigger, you feel the power come in, you lean forward a little bit, and then you lift your arms, so you flare your arms out. Then you can just feel it pushing against your arms. And then in your own time, you lower your arms, like a penguin kind of lowering its wings. You start rising. You are just enjoying the view and deciding where you're going to fly. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, David Martin told us that Randox had become the biggest COVID testing facility in the UK. Now, to tell you how all this happened in such a short space of time, I'm going to introduce you to a guy called Jason O'Neill. 
the first step of treatment of a disease is always diagnosis. He's a biochemist and leader for Randox's molecular research and development team, and he played a crucial part in devising their COVID test. It started on a Saturday in January 2020 at 10.30pm when Jason got a phone call. It was from Randox's chief scientist. And they had discussed, you know, the need to kind of start immediately on this new coronavirus. Because this was a pandemic, and it was even at that point claiming lives, we felt absolutely we needed to move very quickly. We had to kind of get a test design up and running. So we came in on the weekend and we, we started to do the initial design. We wanted to produce something that could detect individuals who had COVID-19 and we could identify who they are, get them their treatment that they require, obviously, but then also get them isolated and, and try and break that chain of transmission so that obviously the pandemic could be curbed as best as we could. So Jason and the team designed some short DNA sequences called primers that stick to the DNA of the virus. If a person has the infection and we take a sample of their nose or throat area, we remove the RNA and DNA out of that sample. We then take that RNA and we put it into our kit. They then use a process called PCR to amplify this minuscule COVID-positive sample, making it detectable. Then they add it to a unique piece of Randox technology called a biochip. Which is a little 9x9mm ceramic chip with little spots on it. If the sample's positive, then that material will then stick to one of those spots on the chip. The spot will light up. And that's how Jason's team cracked it. They developed a rapid COVID test that worked. But an enormous logistical challenge still lay ahead. The tests were out there, and now they had to find a way to process them. Fast. The whole of the UK were hearing these, like, our deadlines, basically. We have to do this. We need to do this. And we're going to hear more about that later. Since the early days of science fiction, people have dreamed of strapping on a jetpack, imagining what it'd feel like to hear the turbojets roar, to rise up from the ground, propelling your body forward and soaring across the landscape. It is the most exhilarating, euphoric, kind of free, almost dreamlike freedom. Richard Browning, the founder and chief test pilot from Gravity. We build and fly 1,000-horsepower jet suits. I'm afflicted by this passion for doing the unusual, and I'm also battle-hardened to the reality that most of the time the sceptics are bang on and I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's the world we live in, right? Otherwise, all these things would be do, being done all the time. I'm very aware that most ventures like this do not work. And my key mantra is innovation is all about failure. You've just got to make those failures survivable. For Richard, that mantra isn't just a rhetorical device. It's rooted in a very real place that goes back to his father, an aeronautical engineer and inventor. I spent a lot of time in his workshop building, making, breaking things, taking things apart. Up until the age of 10 when I went to boarding school, I spent pretty much the whole time, you know, with my father doing all sorts of little engineering things. I distinctly remember taking apart things like kind of little broken radio control cars and messing around with them and trying to modify them. I, yeah, I used to love those kind of things. When Richard was still a kid, his dad left a job in corporate engineering behind to pursue a dream. He wanted to build a business off the back of one of his inventions, a new type of bicycle suspension, inspired by his work in aviation engineering. 
Having the engineering idea is one thing, trying to turn that into a profitable, sustainable business is a whole other challenge. Although the idea was sound, over time, problems on the business side of the venture began to pile up. By the time I was 15, it was all looking pretty bleak. He took his own life when I was, when I was 15. Richard lost his father when he was just a teenager. As an adult, he got into hobbies like ultramarathons, strength training, pushing his body to its limits. He even had a career in the Marines. It was certainly in my mind a safe zone to push myself because I thought, you know what, it's only pain doing a speed march in freezing cold weather after three or four days of no sleep and whatever. You know, it's, it's kind of a challenge, but I know that when I finished it, it's not impacting my ability to pay the mortgage or keep, you know, food on the table. I've got two boys and a wife, you know, and a, and a happy home life. And I, I spent 16 years in the corporate world working as an oil trader for BP, all as a direct result, I think, of the drive to never repeat what I experienced when I was a kid in terms of that degree of misery and hardship, if you like. But through all that, Richard continued to love engineering, making, creating and problem solving. I never lost the passion that used to fuel him and the manifestation of that and the fulfillment of some of that in a huge part is related to the delivery, if you like, or the fulfillment of what he didn't manage to achieve. So he followed in his father's footsteps, but drew his own route. And the dream he was pursuing, like so many before him, was this. He wanted to fly. I actually hatched some ideas around kind of human flight that were related more to whether you could manipulate wing structures using your body. I mean, there's this idea that human beings are not structurally designed to flap wings. Drawing on his experience with calisthenic bodyweight training, alongside his engineering expertise, Richard had an idea. In theory, he thought, a person could propel themselves upwards using a mix of the explosive power of a box jump with the resistance you'd get from some kind of wing structure. There's a lot of technical challenges in trying to actually turn that concept into something that, that manifestly works. And I started to pivot my idea into thinking, well, let's use the same human brain and body inspired idea and minimalist approach, but let's just add a little bit of horsepower and still use the brain as the balance machine and the body as the flight structure. And that, that was what I got a slight inkling that was possible back in 2016 and embarked on a journey of trying to prove it. Richard committed to turning endless notebook sketches into something real, something he could go and test. That's how one day he found himself in a country lane with a micro gas turbine strapped to his arm and the fuel tank sitting in a mop bucket next to me, firing up the first iteration of his jet suit design. It actually blew my mind. It was this spongy, gentle push. Close your eyes, it felt like holding a fire hose. And you know what? The physics is pretty much the same. Instead of water travelling at, I don't know, I'm guessing 100 miles an hour coming out of a fire hose, this was air coming out, which it weighs vastly less, but at about 1,000 miles an hour. It just felt the same spongy push. If you close your eyes and lean on a bathroom sink, it just felt like that. I actually did the first flight by November 2016 with two little engines on the back of my legs, one on each leg, and two on each arm. That first six-second flight was, was a, a pivotal moment, really, because, I mean, for moments I'd been in the air before then, but it was always a sort of 
hold your breath and try and land again and not fall over. But that six second flight felt like the first proper moment that this concept had actually worked. Loads of people thought that what we've gone and done, if you'd asked them before we'd done it, uh, they would have said that you'd never carry enough fuel, it's going to be too powerful, the heat will be too dangerous, it'll be impossible to try and manipulate the energy of this and the power of this, the gyroscopic moment of the spinning turbines at 120,000 RPM will torque your arm all over the place. You know, there's a great big, long, boring list of reasons why this should never work. So Richard kept testing out designs until he ended up with what he has now. Two engines on each arm, with one larger engine strapped to his back. And he realised he'd actually done it. He could fly. You're hammering along, skimming over the water, kicking up a plume behind you, point your arms forward, feel like a, I don't know, a G and a half or something of deceleration, rise up, spin round, fly backwards, fly sideways alongside another pilot, roll forwards onto your front, then really hammer down, arms close by your sides, nudge the power up even more, feel that acceleration. You're just cartwheeling going wherever you like. It is indescribably exhilarating. The jet suit isn't just the realisation of Richard's personal dream. The technology holds a huge amount of potential. We've actually adjusted and adapted now to do loads of search and rescue and military work, moving you know, medics and search and rescue and uh, special forces going across minefields, cliffs, whatever you need to do. It's not flying around with guns blazing, it's about mobility of specialist personnel. I'm actually keeping surprising myself with just how adaptable and usable this equipment is in places we never imagined. So what's next for Gravity Industries? We've got an amazing global awareness from all these events around the world. That was due to roll up into a, an international race series with guys and girls racing for different teams all over the world. And uh, the inaugural race in Bermuda, we were, we were literally three weeks away from getting on a plane with the team to go and start there and then COVID struck. Although the pandemic delayed the plan, the race series is only temporarily on pause. And I'm really interested to see how that develops with Richard, because when it comes to signs of the next technology revolution, the intersection with extreme sports is often the place to look. We're basically emulating what happened with the car 120 years ago, starting with a racing league for electric flying cars. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we heard how Randox developed their rapid COVID tests. Now it's time to hear how they took that test and used it as the bedrock to build the biggest COVID testing lab in the UK. This is where Dr. Joanne Dara comes in. So I'm the current head of the COVID testing labs. It was spring 2020 and the pandemic was surging. The virus had arrived in the UK and the country was about to go into lockdown. Joanne and her team were faced with the huge challenge of trying to solve the problem of mass testing. This was the only way that they were going to be able to get people out of lockdown and to be able to get the virus under control. Like The answer to it was testing. The government were making promises that we aim to have this number of tests completed per day by this date. The whole of the UK were hearing these, like our deadlines basically. So there was tremendous pressure on our shoulders knowing that it is down to us that we have to do this, we need to do this. 
At the beginning, back in March last year, they were processing 100 samples a day with 10 to 15 staff. 100 tests a day seemed like, a, like incredible, like a massive achievement. But then we've grown from that then up to doing, like in January, where there was 103,000 samples done in the day and 850 people on our rota. It can take companies years to scale up like this, but Randox had no choice. While the rest of the country shut down, Joanne and her team went into overdrive as more and more samples arrived every day. We've had to bring in automation, so instead of people manually opening these, now they just all slide through a box cutter. If any of the samples have like leaked in transit, we carry out decontamination of the outer side. Am I going into too much detail or is this fine? You'll be able to run a COVID lab at the end of this. <laughs> Once we got to the million, the millions just kept on coming. It then got to mean that, that a million really wasn't that much after all. Every million we get, there's a complimentary breakfast served for all the staff whenever they arrive in the morning to their shift. And when we got 10 million, everyone got dinner as well. You can find out more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com. Yeah, why don't we have flying cars? <laughs> this is Matt Pearson. Founder and CEO of Airspeeder. A new company with a dazzling vision. You know, if you picture the future, there are always cities with things whizzing around all over the place. Blade Runner, Back to the Future, The Fifth Element. That's pretty much how the city of the future looks, in movies at least. We have everything else. We have amazing communications and the internet, which no one really saw coming, and iPads and Twitter and all sorts of wonderful things. But um, we still don't have that, that vision that every science fiction movie has of, of what we now call advanced air mobility or urban air mobility. AKA flying cars. So as a kid, I think that's, that's just how I pictured things would be by now. So I got really excited about a lot of the projects that are making progress towards that vision and uh, where flight becomes a very personal thing instead of, at the moment, it's a very protected world, I guess. Only a, a few people get to experience that hands-on feeling of flying. It hasn't been democratized in the same way that motoring has. But finally, everything is coming together and we're, we're just at that right moment in history when it's possible. There are lots of reasons we haven't got our flying cars yet, despite it being one of the most ubiquitous visions of the future across pop culture. If you think about air traffic control, for one thing, those guys are already pretty stressed, <laughs> managing just a few things in the air. And what you want is a vehicle that's either totally autonomous or, as I prefer, semi-autonomous, where you're still in command, but the robot is there to, to keep you safe. That will make flying as simple as driving. As well as making the technology easy to use, there are lots of other obstacles that have to be taken on board. Like how do you power a flying car? Airspeed is building electric vehicles and a big part of their journey has been iteratively improving on battery technology. Because imagine trying to keep this in the air for more than a few minutes at a time. So it looks very much like a traditional racing car but instead of open wheels, it's got eight propellers in pairs. So four arms, two propellers on, on each. 
picture a kind of cigar racer with, with propellers instead of wheels. Air mobility is one of those technologies that's kind of inevitable. It is going to happen. The questions are really just when and how. And that's where Airspeeder's mission comes in. The big theory Matt's working to is that the world of sports is an environment that allows for very speedy innovation. And that's how you birth new technology. Once it's been done in the sports arena, versions of that tech begin trickling down into our everyday lives. Matt wants to use Airspeeder to supercharge the progress already being made in the world of flying cars. We're creating the Formula One of the skies, basically. Surely this is the most exciting mobility revolution in about 120 years. It's the one we've all been waiting for. Even Henry Ford was waiting for. He said, you know, mark my words, the, the car and the plane will eventually merge. So it's, it's such an exciting mobility revolution. And if you go back 120 years and look at what application the motor car was first used for, most of the, the early motoring companies that really made a difference were racing companies first. They were racing cars. Ford and Fiat and Renault and Rolls, they were all racing drivers and um, they, they all put out racing cars to prove the technology, to develop the technology. So we're basically emulating what happened with the car you know, 120 years ago, starting with a racing league to accelerate this electric aerial mobility revolution. I heard a lovely thing uh, a few days ago where someone said um, adaptive braking and those sorts of those sorts of things were not invented to go slower. They were invented for racing cars so that they could go faster and take corners more aggressively. So a lot of the technologies that we take for granted, safety features and performance features that we take for granted in our cars today, started life in racing cars. It's worked before, we think it'll work again. Another great example of this theory in action is anti-collision technology. We are doing collision avoidance in three dimensions at very high speeds, at low altitudes usually, you know, and in close proximity. And also a kind of key thing to remember is the way aviation thinks about collision avoidance is we'll just stay as far as possible away from each other. But every racing driver is going to want to get close to the, the driver in front of them and uh, is going to want to kind of nudge their way forward. So what we actually need to be able to do is to get pilots very, very close together. So this is thinking about collision avoidance in, in a bit of a different way. You still want a pilot in command, but the autonomous system needs to notify them that they're getting close to something and then stop any actual collision from, from happening. Every new car that you buy has uh, some level of, of collision avoidance or anti-collision system. We are taking that to the next level, really. All of this means that we can race very, very close together at high speed and basically deliver something that looks like motorsport in the sky. An airspeeder pilot views the world through a visor which lays out an augmented reality track right in front of their eyes. So a race could happen in any number of places around the planet. All they need is a big open space. Coming up over the next 18 months, we've got races in the US, the Middle East, the middle of Australia. And then we hope to, to see more locations, you know, deserts around the world, races over the sea, in harbours, um, around islands, over deserts. Absolutely breathtaking scenery in, in these incredible locations around the world. 
there'd be very few spectators actually at the races. Instead, you're likely to be watching the race as a live stream, enjoying the incredible wide shots of flying cars, racing at high speeds in some of the most beautiful natural environments on Earth. But also tuning into the onboard view from inside the vehicles, or the augmented reality view to see exactly what the pilot sees. This also means airspeeder is a very low impact sport when it comes to the environment. They can film it all. And kind of not leave any, any footprints. So we can go to some of the, the most amazing locations in the world and have a race, emission-free, infrastructure-free, and we don't even leave tyre prints. And if you're wondering who will actually get to fly these things... We <laughs> have this long, long list of, of pilot applicants that grows every day. The leading applications at the moment are usually ex-military fighter pilots, test pilots, uh, racing drone pilots who might have proven themselves with tiny multi-copters, little drones. Uh, we've also had a lot of motorsport drivers that are kind of looking at this is the next step. And so I think this is going to be a really interesting thing to watch over the first few seasons, a cohort of pilots that are drawn from fighter jets and drones and esports and motorsport battling it out. But really, isn't all this just a secret ploy for Matt to get behind the wheel of a flying car? Absolutely, yeah. Why do you think I'm doing this? Uh... <laughs> the Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Paul Smith, and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast. <laughs>